0: Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, we're going to be stepping out of Acts. Don't everyone celebrate at once. I'm kidding. Uh, We are beginning Advent, as was read to us earlier, as we have been singing about. Now that Thanksgiving is done, we can focus on Christmas. Amen. Amen. Now, Advent is the beginning of our preparation for Christmas. This is uh, the historical tradition throughout church history that the significance of Christ's birth, that is, Jesus coming to this world, born of a virgin, born in a manger, to come to live a life of perfection, to then die on a cross and then defeat death in the resurrection. This is what we are preparing for, Christmas is far bigger than just a fun little nice story in a manger and in a, in a nativity. So Advent, which again, as was read to us earlier, uh, is this idea of coming, uh, preparation for Jesus' coming is, is for four weeks all the way up until Christmas, including Christmas Eve. We are going to be focusing on what it meant for Jesus to come, the hope, the joy, and everything that comes with Jesus' first coming, looking forward to the second coming, that's why we lit a candle this morning. By Christmas Eve, all of those candles are going to be lit. I hope that you'll be a part of all of these Advent celebrations. So, if you have your Bible, we're going to be stepping out of Acts for the, the entirety of December. And we're going to be looking this morning at, Dece- at Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 17 through 22. I recently read a quote by a secularist, uh, and it was about 30 years ago that this was said, but I think it's very appropriate, especially around Christmas time. The quote goes like this, tradition is the living faith of the dead, traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Let me read that again. Tradition is the living faith of the dead, while traditionalism is the dead faith of of the living. I think a very appropriate insight by a secularist. I think that that's most appropriate around Christmas time because the danger of Christmas for many of us is around Christmas time we just do things. We always have done these things, right? We always decorate in this way. We always get together in this way. We always eat this dish. We always have this schedule. We always do these things. We hold to traditions, which in and of themselves are not bad unless it becomes traditionalism. We do it just to do it, completely devoid of any meaning, of any value and any significance. So what we're going to be considering this morning is what is the significance of Jesus? And we're going to be pointing all the way back to some of the earliest prophecies or promises of Jesus coming. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, an expectation is going to be given, an expectation for a greater prophet, someone who is going to come and do a powerfully important and significant work. And what we must be mindful of this morning is that if Christmas is merely continuing on traditions void of any meaning or significance, then we are completely missing the point of Christmas. We must consider, what does God's Word tell us about the significance of Jesus? What does His birth mean? And what does this most long-expected Word of God mean our lives today. So this is what we're going to be drawing from, from Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting in verse 17, reading through the end of the chapter. Will you follow along as I read? We're told, starting in verse 17, the Lord said to me, this is the Lord speaking to Moses, they have spoken well, speaking of Israel, saying the power power of God is too much for them. They will surely die if God does not restrain his power from them. (laughs) He says, they have spoken well. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how then will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Fathers, we have just now read a snippet of your word, this text before us. Will you help us to rightly understand the context, the historical ramifications, the initial fulfillment, but ultimately this complete fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Father, will you help us to see more of Jesus this morning and less of man? Will you help for this next amount of time that we have for this sermon, for us to see Jesus more clearly, for Jesus to be magnified and for Jesus to be worshipped and nothing else. Lord, we love you in your name. Amen. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to spend not too terribly long, but we need to spend the first part considering what is the initial fulfillment of this text. There's going to be an initial fulfillment that's going to have ramifications throughout the Old Testament, so we're going to have to understand what's happening in Deuteronomy, how is this text used throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, how does God use this for Israel's betterment, and then the second half of the sermon, which is really where the driving focus of this text goes, is what does this look like ultimately? What is the ultimate fulfillment of this and as you well know, we're, we're going to get to Jesus. That's going to be the ultimate fulfillment, and we're going to see what that means. But we do need to understand, first and foremost, what's happening here and what is this initial fulfillment. If you're unfamiliar with the book of Deuteronomy, since we're literally jumping into the middle of this book, this, this book is the second law. This is the, the last book of the Pentateuch, which means the time of Israel's wandering in the wilderness has come to a close. They are on the cusp, and I mean they are looking into the promised land. The land that God promised to Abraham is now, they are at the doorstep of that land. In Joshua, the very next book, they're going to enter the promised land. They're going to have battles, such as Jericho. They're going to take over the promised land. But here in this second law, or the re-giving of the law by Moses, this is Moses' last words the last words that he's going to communicate. He's reminding Israel of the covenant that God has given to them, how they must live in the promised land. And these are the last words of, of Moses before he will die, not entering into the promised land. And so what we see here in this book is a waiting to get into the promised land. And what we see in our text in verses 70 to 22 is the waiting for some office or a group of people who are going to do a necessary better work. Notice how what we see here in verse 17 through 22 is a declaration and a certainty that there's going to be another office or role given to the Israelites, If you're familiar uh, from Genesis through Deuteronomy, you know that there have been leaders given, you know that there have been priests given, but there have not yet been prophets given. Moses is going to be the initial prophet, but the question is, what about when Moses dies? Is God still going to speak to his people? Is God still going to deliver his word to his people? And this is the key question here, really leading into verse 18. Israel recognizes the power of God, and if they are sinning against God, they will surely die. And God says, this is a good thing, you understand rightly my power. But notice in verse 18, the office of prophet, or this role of prophet, is going to be declared. He says that I will raise up a prophet, and we'll get to that singular uh, fulfillment here later, but I'll raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I'll put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I have commanded you. So so notice that this office of prophet, this role of prophet is for the very first time being given. And again, the, the question here is, is God going to still speak to his people? Once Moses dies, what then? Will the word of God still be among his people? Verse 18 is giving the assurance, yes, God is going to continue sending prophets that are going to speak the word of God. But notice how in verse 19, God assumes the stubbornness of Israel, right? He assumes there's going to be stubbornness in Israel because that's what they've done for the entirety of their history, and he says that if you don't listen to the prophet that God will send that's the equivalent of not listening to God himself. Pay attention to the severity of what's being spoken here. The the role of prophet that's being talked about here the role of prophet that's being talked about here in Deuteronomy chapter 18 is so significant that if you reject the prophet and more specifically the words of the prophet you're rejecting God himself. So we can think of Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, Malachi, Hosea, and all the rest of the Old Testament prophets. When their message was rejected, Israel was actually rejecting God himself. And when we look through the Old Testament, we know that this happens repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. Israel rejected God. The prophets who came speaking words of repentance, who came speaking words of turning back to God, and they suffered severely for what they said. Notice what James would say in James 5, speaking of the suffering of the prophets. He says, An example, brethren, of suffering and patience. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Consider what Stephen would tell the Pharisees in Acts chapter 7. He says, Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Over and over again, we see that the prophets suffered for speaking the words of God because they were rejected for speaking the words of God. Ultimately, God's people was rejecting God himself. Jesus gave a parable about the vine growers, where, where the owner of the vineyard sent he sent uh, people to tell the vine, uh, the vine growers to give money They beat them and then ultimately killed the Son, ultimately Jesus Christ. But Jesus was saying, you have rejected the prophets. They were beaten. They were accused. And you threw them out. The idea here is the role of prophet was not an easy one. It was speaking the words of God faithfully, but they were rejected. Now let me make a quick application here. Because I think it's easy for us to read passages like James 5, such as I just read to us, and think, okay, so that's like us, right? We are like the prophets of old, in that we suffer for being obedient. We suffer because we speak the words of truth, and yet the world rejects us. And so we want to be the victim, such as the prophets were. But the cold reality that we have to come to, considering this role of prophet, is that we are not in the role of the prophet. The cold reality is, because of our sin, Because of our rejection of God, we are not the suffering servant and prophet. We are the ones who put the suffering servant and prophet to death because of our sin. And I know this is a Christmas message, and Christmas messages are supposed to make us feel better about ourselves, right? But we have to be very honest with ourselves and realize that we are not the victors in this story, and we're also not the victims in the story. You and I are the Israelites, stubborn, rejecting the one who spoke the words of God. We put the Son of God to death on the cross because of our sin. Let's just get really honest with ourselves about this. The story of Christmas and the significance of Christmas does not start with warm, fuzzy feelings of a baby in a manger. It starts with the realization that we put to death the prophet himself that ultimately Deuteronomy 18 is pointing to. Now, before we get to Jesus fulfilling that, which is what we're, we're really driving to, we need to finish out the text because what's said in verses 20 to 22 it's vitally significant. Notice how in verses 20 through 22, uh, talking about this role of prophets, bearing in mind there's initial fulfillment of the prophetical ministries through the Old Testament, uh, there's more or less an equation given to us. How are we going to know if someone who claims to be from God, claims to be a prophet from God, how do we know if they're genuine, if they really are actually from God? These are very important. Two things are told to us here in verses 20 through 22 to tell if a prophet is actually from God. The first thing is in verse 20, which is to say that false prophecies result in death. False prophecies result in death. That's very significant, especially when we're going to get to Jesus here in a moment. False prophecies result in death. If you speak something that is not of God, not from God, it results in death. The second, what's another way that we can tell if someone is from God in a prophetical ministry? Not only are false prophecies resulting in death, but secondly, does the prophecy come true? Is it true? Does it come to pass? That's what verse 22 says. If, if If a prediction, a prophecy of something happening, if it comes to pass, then it's from God. So these are the two qualifications for a prophet. If if they're alive, if they offer a prophetic ministry and they continue to live, then it's from God because false prophecies results in death. And secondly, does their prophecies come to pass? Do their predictions come true? So now we have to ask ourselves, who is this singular prophet? We see that there have been continual prophets, major and minor prophets, throughout the Old Testament, but there is a singularity to verse eighteen. There's a seemingly description of a prophet who's going to be better than Moses, who's going to speak the words of God, and who's going to fulfill something great, wonderful, and powerful. Who is this prophet that Moses is speaking of, that God is telling Moses about? And we could say here, how? If it is Jesus, how does he fulfill this ministry? So the second main point is the full fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of Christ as prophet. And this is, of course, where everything comes together. Notice how in verse 18 it says, a prophet from among their countrymen. This idea is whoever this prophet is, he must be a Jew. He must come from God's people to do a prophetical ministry that is not only like Moses, but is better than Moses. And friends, if you lived in the first century Israel, if you lived in the promised land, you were looking for this better prophet. You were looking for the better Moses. You were looking for the better Elijah. You were looking for the better Isaiah. You were looking for the better Jeremiah. Who is this prophet that Moses talked about here in Deuteronomy 18 that we still haven't received yet? We see this all throughout the New Testament. You can consider John chapter 1. When John the Baptist starts his ministry, people look to him and they ask him, essentially, who are you? They ask him if he's the Messiah. They ask him if he's Elijah. Notice what verse 22 of John 1 says. Are you the prophet? That's what people wanted to know. Well, Where where is where is that question coming from? From Deuteronomy 18. Are you the prophet that we've been expecting, that we've been longing for? Verse 25, again they asked John the Baptist and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, and if you're not the prophet? They are expecting a prophet. Also in John chapter 1, and this is so important, the very first indication that we are given that Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 comes from one of Jesus' disciples. It's powerful. Philip goes to tell Nathanael a really powerful thing. He says these words. This is John 1.45. We have found him, speaking of Jesus, we have found him of whom Moses in the law, the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy 18, that's what he's referring to, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The idea here is, they're looking, they're looking, where is this prophet? Who's going to be better than Moses? And we're now given a hint here in John chapter 1 that it's Jesus. John then continues to show us throughout his book that people started to see that Jesus was the fulfillment of this prophet, uh, of this prophecy here in Deuteronomy 18. You can remember the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4.19 she says, I tell, or I can tell that you are a prophet. After Jesus fed 5,000 people in John chapter 6, the people said, truly, he is the prophet who has come into the world. And when speaking to another crowd in John chapter 7, we're told that they said, this certainly is the prophet. The idea that we see in the New Testament is Jesus is fulfilling This prophetical ministry that's talked about here in Deuteronomy 18. Now, the question before us is one, were they right? Is Jesus actually this prophet? Two, why does it matter if he is that prophet? What's the significance of it? And three, what does that mean for us today? And this is going to be the remainder of our time together. I'm going to give you five proofs. I'm going to give you five proofs in answering the how. How is Jesus a better prophet than Moses? Five proofs. I'm then going to give you three significances of why. Why is it significant that he's the prophet? And I'm going to give you one application of what does this mean? Five proofs, three significances, one application. You ready? Let's go for it. How is Jesus the better Moses? Five proofs. Let me tell you these in order. And I won't spend too long on them but they're significant, I think. The first proof that Jesus is indeed this prophetic ministry from Deuteronomy 18 is that Jesus faithfully spoke the words of God. Jesus faithfully spoke the words of God. That is, in a nutshell, what the prophetical role in the Old Testament was, speaking the words of God to God's people. You can go to any uh, prophetical ministry and that is what they did. God spoke to the prophet, they spoke to the people. And, And we'll see more specifically what those words are, but that's the basic function of a prophet, speaking the words of God to God's people. Is that what Jesus did? John chapter 12, verses 49 through 50. Jesus said, for I did not speak on my own initiative... But the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things that I speak, what Jesus speaks, I speak just as the Father has told me. Is Jesus the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18 at the very core basic function of prophecy? Yes because the words that Jesus is speaking are not of his own initiative they're from the father does that make sense he's speaking as a mouthpiece for God the father Jesus is faithfully speaking the words of God a second proof that Jesus is the prophet spoken of from Deuteronomy 18 is Jesus faithfully spoke against sin and the need for repentance he spoke against sin and for the need of repentance If you've spent any time in Old Testament prophecy, you know that is what the prophets did. They said, look, this is your sin. You must repent. Stop bowing down to these idols and start worshiping God. Stop disobeying God, obeying God. This is at the foundation of what the prophets did. The words of God were against sin and for repentance. But what about Jesus? Is that what Jesus did? In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel told Mary that she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What did Jesus do? He came speaking the words of God because of yours and my sin. And that's a really good thing, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, that steps on our toes that the baby came because of the lies that I've said, because of the bad things that I've done, but yet, that's a wonderful thing because he came to save me from that sin. Do you see how the prophets of old paled in comparison to Jesus, the true prophet? They spoke against sin. He's He's coming to save from sin. That's really significant. But how is he going to do that? By speaking about repentance. Notice what we're told in Mark 1.15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. This is at the very beginning of his ministry. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, this idea of Jesus coming to save us from sins and all it takes is just, okay, well, sure, I believe in Jesus. That's wonderful. That's not it. There must be a repentance, a repudiation, a rejection of what caused Jesus to come and die on the cross, the sin that's in your heart and in mine. Yes, the prophets of old spoke against sin and called for repentance, but Jesus came to save us from our sin and he called us to repentance, not only in God, but in himself. Jesus faithfully spoke against sin and the need for repentance. Third proof that Jesus is the better prophet is that Jesus pronounced God's forgiveness and pardon. Now, this should stir us to the very core of who we are if you are a Christian. Jesus came not just talking about forgiveness that God can give, but Jesus came to give forgiveness. And he came to pardon you, formerly an enemy of God, to become a a child of God, to become a son and a daughter of God of our heavenly father. The prophets could only point to something else. They could only say that what that God will forgive, but Jesus could say I forgive. Notice what Jesus tells a woman who has been forgiven much in Luke 7:48. Jesus said to her, "Your sins have been forgiven." I don't know about you, but I've never read in the Old Testament a prophet who could forgive someone of their sins. Only Jesus could do this. But, pastor, is that only for that woman in Luke chapter 7? I'm glad you asked. Paul would tell us in the first chapter of Colossians, Colossians 1, 13 through 14, that this is for all of us who are in Him. Paul says, for He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of, of your sins. Jesus came to forgive you. Not to say, hey, hey, look forward, maybe there's going to come someone, we're hoping for someone who's going to come and forgive you of your sins. He came and said, you are now forgiven. The only way for there to be any hope The only way for there to be any reconciliation with the God who created us and yet we have rejected is for Jesus Christ to be the better prophet, to not point forward to a forgiveness, but to say it's now, it's here, it's through me. Jesus is the better prophet because he came giving forgiveness and pardon for your sins and for mine. Christian, has that happened to you? Have your sins been forgiven? Is that the significance of Christmas to you? That that little baby came to forgive you of your sins? To pardon you of being an enemy against God? Jesus is the better prophet. A fourth proof is that Jesus affirmed himself as the prophet par excellence. Jesus affirmed himself as the prophet par excellence. An easier way of saying that is the more perfect prophet. Jesus said himself that he was the fulfillment of what Moses described, a more perfect prophet than Moses. All of the prophets looked forward. We we heard Isaiah 9 and 7 this morning, looking forward, looking forward, there's going to come one, there's going to come one, and yet Jesus did not say, hey, look forward, there's going to become one. He said, look right here, right now, it's me. John 5, 46 46 says this so clearly. Jesus says, if you believed Moses, what is he referring to? Deuteronomy 18. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he, Moses, wrote about me, Jesus. That's John 5, 46. Jesus is saying, that what Moses was referring to, what he was prophesying about, the promise that God gave to Israel in Deuteronomy 18, has now been fulfilled in your presence. It is I, Jesus Christ, who's the better prophet. Jesus himself affirmed he's the better prophet. And then the final proof that Jesus is this better prophet, not only did Jesus affirm it, but all of the New Testament affirms that Jesus is this better prophet very explicitly. Consider what uh, Peter says. So the fifth is scripture affirms Jesus as prophet. Peter would say in Acts chapter 3, verses 22 to 23, Peter quotes Moses here in Deuteronomy 18. He says, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. He's quoting Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. Did you catch that? He's telling Jews, Israelites about Jesus and he's saying, look, remember the prophet that Moses talked about? It's Jesus it's Jesus. It's Jesus. If we miss Jesus, we miss all of the Old Testament. The totality of the Old Testament was pointing clearly to this future prophet, this future Messiah, this future Savior of Jesus Christ. But again, later in the New Testament, not only does Peter affirm Jesus as the better prophet, but the author of Hebrews begins his book in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-2 through 2, by saying, we need no more prophets. No more because the perfect prophet has come. Hebrews one, one through two. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, or in these more recent days, God has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't go looking for other prophets. Don't go looking for other Isaiah's and Jeremiah's and Hosea's and Amos's and Jonah's. Don't be looking for them because we have Jesus. The one true perfect fulfillment of all of God's word has come together in Jesus Christ now. That's five proofs of the entirety of Scripture the entirety of Jesus' ministry, and the entirety of what prophecy is that says Jesus is this better prophet. But that that means nothing. It means nothing if we don't understand its significance. So let me give you three significant reasons of why this matters. If we now know how Jesus is the fulfillment, why does it matter? I can imagine there may be one or two of us sitting here this morning who are asking ourselves, what on earth does this have to do with Christmas? When I think about Christmas, I think about good things. I think about a baby born in a manger. I think about singing Christmas songs and getting together with family and friends and all of these wonderful traditions that we hold to. What does Jesus, fulfilling Deuteronomy 18, have to do with the expectancy of a Savior? Three reasons why this is significant. First, staying in this theme uh, from Hebrews, as I just read to you, the first reason this is significant is because Jesus mediates a new covenant. Jesus mediates a new covenant. An entire sermon could be preached just on this point. I'm not going to do that, though. I'm going to try to just put the the core parts uh, into just a nutshell and, and give it to us just to remind us of what Jesus accomplished. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, founded in the Abrahamic, continued in the Mosaic, and so forth, in these covenants throughout the Old Testament, there was this notion that something was still not yet complete. There was not a fulfillment of full forgiveness for sins until Jesus came and mediated, brought about a better covenant. We call this the covenant of grace. You know, we talk about grace a lot. It's only because of Jesus. Without Jesus, without this expectancy and then fulfillment of this old covenant, there would be no grace. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, that he has fulfilled the law, what he's saying is these prophecies of the Old Testament have perfectly been fulfilled in him. Catch this here because this is important. If Deuteronomy 18 missed Jesus, Jesus fulfills Isaiah, He fulfills Jeremiah, He fulfills Ezekiel, He fulfills these prophetical ministries, but the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, man, that just missed Jesus. Then Jesus is incomplete to mediate the new covenant. The old covenant points to the new by necessity. That's why when we talk about the gospel, we go all the way back to the beginning, because the good news of Jesus goes all the way back to the original creation built upon a looking forward and expectancy of a Savior who's going to take away all of our sins in the new covenant. Listen to what the author of Hebrews would say in uh, in Hebrews 9.15 of this covenant of grace. For this reason, He, Jesus, is the mediator, or again, or the initiator, the bringing about of the new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Friends, why does it matter that Jesus mediates or that he fulfilled the old covenant to now bring about the new covenant? The reason why that matters is you can be saved. If Jesus doesn't fulfill the prophetical role that's promised in Deuteronomy 18, then the salvation that you and I cling to with the very depths of our existence is now thrown into significant doubt. The fulfillment of this prophecy, of this promise of Jesus as the better prophet means you and I can now know truth. And as Jesus said, the truth will set you, what? Free. Why? Because there's a new covenant through Jesus, which has fulfilled everything of this prophetical promise. Jesus brings about a new covenant. That's the first significance, It's only our salvation that's at question here. Would you consider that significant? I think I would too as well. Jesus mediates a new covenant. That's why this is significant. The second reason that this is significant, and astute uh, astute Bible readers may know that this is where we were going from the very beginning, but the reason why it's significant that Jesus fulfilled the promise of Deuteronomy 18 is that the words of God have always pointed to Jesus. The words of God have always pointed to Jesus. Last year, um, I don't always remember the sermons that I preach, exactly when I preach them, but I remember the first week of Advent last year, uh, we preached on, on Genesis 3, the very first uh, description of Jesus, that there's going to be a future seed of the woman who's going to crush the seed of the serpent. When we, we talked about that as the very first description of the gospel. And what we need to see here is that Jesus fulfilling the prophetical ministry is from Genesis to Revelation, and hear me now, every part in between is pointing to Jesus. Do you wonder why we're doing a study on Sunday nights that was titled, Seeing Jesus in Leviticus? And then, seeing Jesus in numbers. Can you guess the title of Deuteronomy's study that we're going to start in the springtime? You guessed it. Seeing Jesus in Deuteronomy. We're going to have a field day when we get to chapter 18. It's so explicit, but it's not only in chapter 18. It's all throughout the book everything of ancient Israel, everything of, of the first century, everything of Scripture points forward to Jesus. If you don't know that, then consider what John tells us, these very famous words at the very beginning of the book of John. You know them well. We'll consider them again later this month. But John tells us, in the beginning was the Word The Word was with God and the Word was God. Who is that capital W Word? Who is that? Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw His glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the significance of this. The words of God that have always pointed to Jesus, hear this now, is the very embodiment of God himself in Jesus Christ. Jesus came not only to speak the words, but was himself the word of God. Oh my goodness, think about this. Moses was a great prophet, but he was just a man. Jeremiah, who is an awesome name by the way, Isaiah and Malachi and Hosea, these are great prophets. We're so thankful for them, but they were just men. Jesus came as the perfect prophet, but he didn't just speak the perfect words of God. He is the very perfect word of God himself. Do you see how Jesus is the better prophet. And because He is the better prophet, the significance of this is now you and I can know God. Yes, we know truth because He mediates a new covenant, but because Jesus is God Himself who came to this earth to be born in a manger, you can know God. He's now no longer some ethereal, mystical power that you don't understand of who is it possibly. It's just someone out there. He's real. He's here. And he accomplished real things for yours and my salvation. All of Scripture bears testament that God came here as the Word of God, speaking the words of God so that you can know truth and you can know God Himself. You see how our salvation is resting Upon these truths, there's a third reason that this is significant. The third why not only is it because of the new covenant, not only is it because Jesus is the very word of God throughout the words of God, but thirdly, the third significance, and, and this just gets me really excited Jesus defeated death. That's it, Jesus defeated death. Remember back to Deuteronomy 18. Remember in verses 20 to 22, I made a point that, we, hey, we need to make sure we remember uh, how can you tell if someone is from God, if they're a true prophet. Yes, that applied to the Old Testament prophets, but let's apply those two metrics now to Jesus. Okay? Remember what the two things were. First, in verse 20, they die if it's not from God, if it's a false prophecy, and two, their predictions must come true. Uh Uh-oh, we might initially think. What happened to Jesus? Well, he was born in a manger. He grew up. He had a three-year ministry. And then what happened to him? He died. That's why the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders and the Sanhedrin said, Aha! You see? He was wrong. Because if he was God, as he claimed, he wouldn't have died. Here's where it comes together. He didn't stay dead. In fact, catch this now, he not only prophesied his death, he prophesied perfectly his resurrection. So you see his prophecies not only came true, but they defeated the greatest argument that could be made against him. Because yes, he died, but he didn't stay dead, he defeated sin. He defeated death. The very curse that was upon the false prophets, he defeated for you and for me. Friends, do you see the significance of what all of this means? The significance of Jesus as prophet, as the word of God, full of grace and truth, as John would say in John 1, came to mean that a baby, Jesus, came to take away our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and the curse that was on you and me as sinners was taken away by this better prophet. He took the curse and he did away with it so that you and I might have life. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's all about the forgiveness of sins. It's all about the defeating of death. And it all begins, yes, in the beginning of the Bible, But with that little Christ child, the king born in a manger that all of Israel was looking forward to, is he the better prophet? Yes, he is. So now what does this mean for us today? Let me finish with one final application. If we've seen the how Jesus is this better prophet, if we've seen the why he is the better prophet and why this is significant, now let's answer the what. What does this mean what does this mean for you and for me today? And the application is going to be in the form of a question. What does this truth mean for us today? This is the application. What is Christmas changed? I'm sorry, how is Christmas changed if this is true? How is Christmas changed if this is true? I'm not asking this question out of how does Scripture's understanding of Christmas change, I'm asking you, your traditions, your excitement, your desires, the way you spend your time, everything that is encompassed around Christmas to you. If all that we have said, that Christmas is pointing to, yes, a christ uh, yes, a baby in a manger, but it's vastly more significant than that. And, and actually understanding what that significance of a baby in a manger means. How is your Christmas changed? You see, we need to be really honest with ourselves. For a lot of us, dare I say all of us to a certain extent, Christmas is more characterized by the things that we do and the things that we look forward to that are the exact same as the world. We look forward to shopping, whether in-store or online. We look forward to decorating. We look forward to cooking. We look forward to eating. Those normally go hand-in-hand. We look forward to time with loved ones. We look forward to time off from work. We look forward to rest. We look forward to entertainment. We look forward to all of these things that in and of themselves are not bad or wrong. It's not wrong that you have a family tradition to watch Elf every Christmas, or like us, Home Alone, because that's a great Christmas movie. There's nothing wrong with that. But is that... All Christmas is? Is that even primarily what Christmas is? Do we spend more of our time on the things that I've just labeled before you than we do praising God that he sent a little child to be born of a virgin to save me from my sins, to save you from your sins? if Christmas has actually little to do with the things that we've just described, and has everything to do with Jesus taking away our sins as the better prophet and as the long-expected Savior, then how should our Christmases change? Maybe this Christmas, it's time to do away with old traditions that have no value And maybe it's time to start making new traditions that have everything to do with reminding our children, reminding our neighbors, reminding our parents, reminding our grandparents, reminding ourselves. Christmas has everything to do with a former sinner who was lost and at war with God, brought in under a new covenant to know this God who died for my sins and for yours to give me new life. That's what Christmas is about. And may that understanding change this entire month and our entire lives. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your forgiveness this morning. I'm reminded, just as I was preaching how applicable these words are first and foremost to my life. Realizing the desires of my heart, looking forward to Christmas, excitement of Christmas, the desires of Christmas for me have a lot to do with what I can receive. The rest that I get the enjoyment of being with people that I love. And Father, these are good things, but they're not the most important. They must not be my highest priority and the greatest desire of my heart. Father, will you forgive us for our sins of omission? Will you forgive us that Jesus has only taken a traditional back seat? but we've been much more excited about the things of Christmas rather than what Christmas represents itself. Father, this incarnate Christ child who came, who fulfilled this long-expected wait for a prophet, may it change our lives. May we be different men and women, and may we be a people who celebrate Christmas because Jesus came to take away our sins, to pardon and forgive, and to give new life within himself. Father, may we be changed and may we live for your glory and for your purposes. Father, we ask this in your name. Amen.